Well, hey, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to Alpine Church. We hope that you will get involved. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the teachers here. You know, I've been a part of Alpine Church uh, since the very beginning. And uh, one of the first things we did as a church is we did uh, a campaign just like this and had uh, some taglines that we put on billboards all over I-15. Uh, some of my favorites were wear jeans to church or church caffeinated. Uh, and so we're going to do that again. And we hope that you, uh, if you call Alpine home, you'll get online and join us as we uh, kind of uh, invite people back to church as we get things back to normal, hopefully here a little bit. I just want to say welcome. Uh, thanks for joining us today, this afternoon, and uh, we're in week two of our series, Jesus in Genesis. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we're glad that you're here. Uh, if you were with us last week, you've seen in this series what we've been trying to do uh, is comb through the book of Genesis and really uh, kind of pull out pictures or find Jesus on display. And you know, I think for many of us, oftentimes we make the mistake to think that Jesus is just in the New Testament. Uh, but as we saw very early in the book of Genesis last week, Jesus was here from the very first verse of Genesis in Scripture. We believe all Scripture points to Jesus. Uh, so we're going to, over the next four weeks, we're going to dig into four more uh, areas where we kind of see Jesus on display. Uh, and today, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at something a little bit mysterious. Uh, you know, anybody in here like a good mystery, maybe a mystery movie or a book? Anybody in here? Maybe just me, a couple of us? Yeah? Uh, I like to kind of unveil the character and the plot and like, you know, how is this going to play off into the bigger picture? And believe it or not, Today we're going to see a kind of this mystery unfold right before our eyes in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. If you have uh, your Bibles with you, you can open up to uh, chapter 14. Uh, that's where we're going to kind of pick up the story. Uh, and we're going to kind of take a look at this uh, really mysterious character that shows up very, very shortly, just three verses in Genesis 14, and then all of a sudden he just disappears and we never really see him again. And so as you're kind of getting to Genesis chapter 14, uh, let me give you some context, to, right? In Genesis chapter 12, uh, many of us know Abram or Abraham, right? In Genesis chapter 12, uh, this was the, the guy that Jesus made a covenant promise with. Uh, you know, God said, I'm going to bring my people through you. You will become Israel. You'll be a great nation. I'm going to bless you. Uh, so that's the first covenant that we see between God and man, and it happens in Genesis chapter 12. And so Genesis, uh, I'm sorry, Abraham and his nephew Lot, uh, they're kind of living under this promise. So they're, they're, they're blessed. Uh, they've come into um, just wealth, and uh, they've got livestock and families, and they're, they're kind of growing into this promise, if you will. And so around Genesis chapter 13-ish, uh, 12, 13, kind of have some quarreling. And so, so Lot and uh, Lot's family, Abraham's family, they kind of have some quarreling. And so Abraham, who's the patriarch of the family, says, listen, I'm going to take the high road here, and I'm going to let you pick all of this land that God gave us, if you remember. He said, I'm going to let you pick from this land. And so Lot, his nephew, kind of surveys the land, and he goes to the Jordan Valley, says, this is really nice, and he ends up in a place called Sodom. Now, many of us know Sodom and Gomorrah, right? This is a place that ended up being very sinful. Uh, so Abraham says, okay, great, you take that part of the land, and I'm going to go over here, and, and he goes into a, uh, the Canaan Valley into a place called Hebron. And so the, the story picks up that there is war that's kind of happening now in the land. So there are five cities, if you will, or five regions that have kings in the region, and they come up against one more powerful king named Ketelamir. 
So Ketelamir is kind of this powerful tyrant king, and they want to revolt against him. And so what happens is, is they go into war against this Ketelamir, and he defeats these five kings, one of which is the king of where Lot and his family reside, Sodom. And so what we read is that uh, he kind of overtakes them, and he takes all of Lot's family, his spoil, basically everything that he has. Word gets back to Abraham, and Abraham's not going to allow anybody to mess with his family. He's living under the covenant promise of God, and so he goes in to fight this Ketelamir. Now, uh, Abraham has 318 men, <laughs> so he uh, is going to go with 318 men into the presence of this powerful king that just defeated five other kings and armies. And so he believes in the power of God, and we read that he goes in, and he defeats this king, Ketelamir, and he brings Lot back with him. And so it's under that umbrella that we now pick up the story in Genesis chapter 14, and here is where really the mystery kind of begins. Uh, we see this guy pop up, and then he vanishes right before our eyes. We're going to read about it in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. It says this. It says, And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of God Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine. It says, Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed by God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. He does something very interesting here. It says, Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all of the goods that he had recovered. And so you might be saying, okay, what's the mystery? Well, if you've read this story specifically, or if you've read Scripture, maybe you've read the Bible, you know that this right here, Genesis 14, verses 18 and 20, this is the only place that we actually physically see this king and this priest. And so it almost kind of feels like we're reading this story right, and Genesis in itself is sometimes a little mysterious in the way that it's kind of presented. And so here we have this guy kind of pop up. It says that he has this encounter with Abram, and then he vanishes. And so you're thinking, well, is this supposed to be there, right? Uh, is this a diversion? You know, have you ever been a, a part of those movies where they'll throw in a character to kind of get you off track? But what we're going to see here is that this wasn't a diversion at all. In fact, this mysterious priest or this mysterious king has a very important role in Scripture. In fact, we see through him that the entirety of Scripture is based partially on his storyline. And so we're going to pick that up here today and we're going to dig into this mysterious character. Would you pray with me one more time? God, we ask for you to dig into our hearts as we get into your word, Lord. Would you bring to the surface uh, anything that, that, that you need to deal with, God, as we begin to see the power of who you are and what you mean to us, God, through your word? Would you speak so clear to us and would you help us to receive what it is that you want us to individually from your word? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so if you're taking notes, we're going to jump right in and we're going to give us, a, kind of get an understanding of who this mysterious person is. In the Old Testament, Melchizedek is a mysterious priest of God. In fact, we read that not only is he a priest of God Most High, he's also a king. No one else has ever held that title in all of Scripture. And what we're going to see in his life is that he is a foreshadow, he's really a picture of pointing to a better priest, a better king that would come. And so, you know, we, we look at this story and we kind of cruise through Genesis chapter 14 and we say, okay, there's three really, you know, ideas of who this person is and then we just move on to the next story. 
But the three things that are said about him are very, very important. Again, one, he's both a priest and a king. No one holds that title in all of Scripture. It says that uh, he was powerful. One thing that we see is that Abram, uh, he received a blessing from Melchizedek. And so in this culture, in this time, anyone who were to give a blessing on someone, it was a sign of authority. If I were to put a blessing on someone, it would say that I am the one blessing is more authoritative than the one who is being blessed. And so here's why this is important. Remember, God made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, I am going to bring my nation through you. And so really, Abraham's a very powerful person, right? Out of his seed, Israel would come. And so what we're seeing is this this priest and this King Melchizedek blesses him, which is showing him a sign of authority. So he's powerful. And then we read that he does something that's really unheard of. It says that Abraham then gave him a tenth of all that he had taken. And so he's literally giving to this king and to this priest a tenth of the spoils that he had just taken from the battle. And so even though we see just very few things about him, we begin to see that he is very special. He's very important. He is from God most high. And so you might be thinking, well, okay, this is called Jesus in Genesis, so what does this have to do with Jesus, right? Well, let's fast forward a thousand years, okay? We're going to jump into the book of Psalm. So some 1,000 years after this is written about King Melchizedek, he kind of vanishes and disappears, we hear about this interaction and we begin to see the pieces or the, the puzzle pieces being put together. Now this psalm is written by King David. And this psalm, Psalm 110, uh, is the most quoted psalm in the entirety of the New Testament scripture. And the reason why it is the most quoted is because they, writers believe and they knew that who was to be prophesied here in Psalm 110 was to be the coming Messiah. And so anytime you see that reference to Psalm 110, this is a clear indicator in Psalm 110 who the Messiah of the world would be. So we pick that story up in Psalm 110. This is King David. He says, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. Now listen. It says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It says, the Lord stands at your right hand to protect you, and he will strike down many kings when his anger erupts. And so what we're beginning to see here is that King David understands the representation of who Melchizedek was in Genesis chapter 14. And he's saying that this powerful priest king, that out of that line, the line of that priesthood would come Jesus, the Messiah. I mean, this is a thousand years later after this happens. Now, here is what is so amazing. If, if you struggle with the validity of Scripture or the inerrancy of Scripture, or if you have questions about the Bible or, or prophecy fulfilled, let's fast forward another 1,000 years later. So Genesis chapter 14, 1,000 years into Psalm 110, and now we're going to pick up in Hebrews chapter 7, which is another 1,000 years later, and we begin to hear the author of Hebrews connecting the dots for us. It says this, that this Melchizedek was a king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God Most High. Uh, he's reminding the readers of the story. It says, when Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, uh, uh, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. It says, then Abraham took a tenth of all he had and captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. And then he begins to explain who he is. It says, the name Melchizedek means king of justice, 
And king of Salem means king of peace or shalom. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. It says this, that he remains a priest forever. And now listen, he says, resembling the son of God. I mean, this is so powerful here. This is from Genesis to Psalm to Hebrew, from some 2,000 years that we begin to see all of the biblical writers who are empowered by God and by the Holy Spirit and how he's bringing this all together. And what he's saying to us is that Jesus is a better picture of this high priest and king. And so we begin to see in Melchizedek a foreshadowing of a better king and a better priest that would come. Now, I don't know about you, but that just gives me the goosebumps to think like this happened over several thousand years and we're beginning to see we have the entirety of the story. And so, I mean, that's maybe a cool history lesson for some of you. I don't know. Uh, but so then what does this mean for us? Like if we're looking at this, this story and this picture and it's giving us an understanding of who Jesus is, what does it then mean for myself personally and what does it mean for you today as we read it in Scripture? Well, I believe it leads to our next point is that that Jesus alone, now please hear this, Jesus alone is our high priest. Jesus alone is our high priest, and what he does in that role is he restores everything that is broken in our relationship with God. And so, I mean, again, if you've studied the Bible, you might be like, okay, well, wait a minute here. So you're saying that Jesus alone is our high priest and king. Well, if I go back into the Old Testament, shortly after all of this was going on, God gave Moses another commandment. You guys remember the commandment, right? The the Ten Commandments? And this was a way for God's people to, to be measured up to the standard that he had for them to live. And if they didn't meet that standard, there had to be a sacrifice for that standard, right? And that standard, that sacrifice, happened from the high priest who came from the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Aaron, which was Moses' brother. So you might be saying, well, okay, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, I'll tell you. So last week, if you were with us, we see that sin enters the world in Genesis chapter 3. God makes everything perfect for us to enjoy the perfection, everything that he created perfectly. And the Bible says we made this decision to kind of do what he asked us not to do. That's called sin. He said, all of this is yours, but you can't do this one thing. And what did we do? We went ahead and did that thing. And so sin enters the world. And because that sin enters the world, everything is cursed. We we learned about this last week. And, And everything's broken. Our relationship with people, our relationship with the world, our relationship with the Almighty God is broken. And so God, he, for his people, for Israel, he says, I'm going to make a way for you to be made right in my eyes. And what it's going to do is it's going to come through a process. There's going to be a high priest that comes from the tribe of Lehi. It's going to start, or Levi. It's going to start from Aaron. And basically every year, it was in the year of the Day of Atonement, there were sacrifices that were going on all of the time. But it's a reminder of your sin. And there's a sacrifice that comes to one person He's the high priest. He's the only person who could go into the the most holy place in the presence of God. And what he was to do was to sacrifice an animal for his sins. And then he was to go into God's presence and to make a sacrifice by an animal for the sins of the people. Every year this happened. 
And you see, there wasn't finality in sin. There was a reminder of guilt and shame. There was a reminder that we would always be under the burden of sin, that we would never measure up to an almighty God. And this was a a reminder for the people to say, listen, you have sin and it separates you from God. And every year, once a year, you're going to be forgiven, but you're going to sin again and you're going to have to do this again. There was never finality to this. And here's what's so important, and this is such a powerful piece in the timeline. There was a a special priesthood, a different priesthood that came from God. And do you remember what that priesthood was? It was the line of Melchizedek. Now listen, Melchizedek was some six generations before Aaron, the first high priest. Hundreds of years before. Three generations before the tribe of Levi. And so what was happening is God, he had a plan for his people, for Israel. It was the law of Moses. It was the covenant of the Aaronic priesthood to forgive the sins of his people. But hundreds of years before that took place for the tribe of Israel, for the people that God was raising up, his people, God had made a plan for all mankind to have their sins forgiven. And that would be through Jesus Christ, our high priest. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. It says, in this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all of those who obey him. And God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, here's why this is important. Because the, the priesthood of Christ, God's priesthood is greater than the tribe of Levi and the Levitical priesthood. It's greater than Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood. In fact, it's greater than the Melchizedek priesthood because God, through Jesus Christ, his son, is our most holy priest. So what would happen is is that he would usher in a new covenant for his people, not just Israel, that that new covenant would be for you and for me, that we would be able to be in relationship with the one true living God. And so when we understand that, let's, let's see what this means for us. We're going to jump into a, a pretty big portion of Scripture. I think the Bible is going to be able to tell the story better than me. It says, Jesus is the one, in verse, chapter 7, verse 22, who guarantees this better covenant with God. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. It says, therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him, and he lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. You see, there is no other without sin except for God himself in the form of Jesus Christ. The high priest had to go, and he had to sacrifice for his own sins before he could go into the presence of God. You see, what this is saying is that Jesus was our high priest, the ultimate sacrifice, because he was God in the flesh, and he was without sin. We pick up the story. It says he has been set apart. I lost lost the slide again. It says he has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every single day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people But Jesus, Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins, for our sin. The law appointed high priests who were limited 
by human weakness, but after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath, and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. And you might be thinking, well, okay, this is Old Testament stuff. Like, what does this even mean for me? Well, this is so profound because what this is saying is that there's no more need for constant reminders of our sin because Jesus died once and for all as the pure, spotless, sinless lamb. He went into the most holy place and he stepped in there and not only did as the high priest, he didn't just do a sacrifice, he was the sacrifice. And because he was perfect, that sacrifice pays for our sin forever, forever and ever and ever. Jesus alone is the only way to fix our broken relationship with God. The chasm that's caused by our sin can only be replaced by Jesus, our high priest. In fact, you know, one of the, the most interesting parts about this specific passage in Hebrews chapter 7 is in verse 26 where it says literally that there is no one outside of Jesus that can hold the Melchizedek priesthood. He is the perfect priest. He is our high priest. He is the only priest. (laughs) Notice one word that kind of keeps coming up, and I think it's a reminder from the, the Hebrew author to help us remember this word forever. So we don't ever have to to, to go through the process over and over again to be reminded. His sacrifice was good once for all, forever. Hebrews 10, chapter 11, 12 says, Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take sins away. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sin, good forever, forever. Now, here's what I, I, if you didn't get anything else, I just want you to hear this in verse 12. Jesus does something very, very profound. It says that he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. Literally, what it's saying is Jesus said, it's finished. I'm done. I came here commissioned by God. I did what I was supposed to do. I lived a perfect life. I died a death that that my people deserved, and I did that as God called me to do it. And that sacrifice that I made is my stamp of approval, and anyone who puts their faith in me is forgiven forever. And so what that should do is that shouldn't be a reminder of our guilt and our shame and sin that happens in our life over and over and over again, and we continue to go to God What we need to understand is that Christ forgive us of our sin, and so now it should change the way that we live. It should change how I live my life, that I would live in awe of the the creator king, our high priest, who stepped from heaven to earth into this land so that we could be in relationship with the almighty living God. And he did that for me and for you. We didn't deserve it. Jesus followed the footsteps of Melchizedek, but far surpasses him in every way, shape, and form. Listen, friend, if you are here today, maybe you're investigating, maybe you're here today and this is all new to you, maybe you're seeking, the Bible very clearly says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. It's Romans 3, 23. All of us have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. Soberingly, three chapters later, it says the wage or the payment for that sin is death, eternal separation from our almighty God and King. But you see, Jesus stepped in as our high priest, not just our high priest, but as the ultimate sacrifice. He went into the presence of God, and he laid his life down to forgive our sin forever. 
And so what we can do is we can rest in knowing that our king defeated sin. So we shouldn't live now to sin and live in the grace of God. Instead, we should allow that thing, the finality of sin, the forgiveness of our sin, to change the way that we live. It should impact every part of who we are. If you have not done that today, the Bible says it's very easy. It's very easy. All we have to do is say yes to Jesus. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, the Bible says that you will be saved. Nothing you can do but to say yes to our high priest and our king. Jesus. Jesus. God loves us so much that he had a plan for us. In Genesis chapter 3, when we sinned, he made a plan. And we're seeing that plan come to fruition in the life of death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you know what, friend, if you're a follower of Christ, one day we're going to stand in the presence of God and he's going to welcome us home with him forever. I cannot wait for that day. If you've never made that decision, we would love to just share with you how to do that very simply here at the end of the service. Let's, let's finalize this uh, today. So for those of us who have accepted Christ, for those of us who are a believer of Jesus Christ, well, then what does this mean for me? If that's you in this place, I want to save this last part for you because I think the author of Hebrews is very clear of what this should mean to us. And it's our last point. Since Christ sacrificed his life once for all, when he sacrificed his life, we now can live boldly in our faith. We now can move boldly through sin and shame and sorrow and sadness and addiction. We can boldly move through those things because we have the power of Jesus residing in us. And then what we should do, because of what God has done in my life and in your life, believer, we should then point as many people as humanly possible to the wonderful grace of Jesus Christ and to his sacrifice for our life. We should boldly do this. It should impact the way that I lead my family. It should impact the way that I lead and love my wife. It should impact the way that I raise my kids. Young person, it should impact the way that you are in school, standing up for who Jesus Christ is and to not be ashamed of who he is in your life. It should impact the way that we communicate to people at our work. We begin to understand that his grace was enough to forgive us so that we could be in relationship with the living God. It then should impact how many people we do and tell. It should change everything about us. We begin to receive this goodness of God. And very clearly what it means, it means that we can go into the presence of God on our own. Listen, Hebrews 10, 19, 21, and so dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter into heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus by his death. Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain to the most holy place, a place where the only high priest could go. Because of what Jesus did, we now get to go into the presence of God. We get to go into the most holy place. In fact, it says, and since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the very presence of God, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed and purified with pure water. You see, the enemy wants us to know that we don't measure up, that we're not holy enough, that our shortcomings are too much, that our sin is too much. And he wants us to, to really, truly believe that we can't enter in the presence of a holy God. But that's all a lie because what we see here is that there's no more guilt and no more shame because Jesus entered into that guilt and shame and he took it upon himself. And not only did he take it upon himself, but he changed it. He replaced our sin with his righteousness. And so we now can be made into the image of God, 
And so what that means is he is not done with us. So again, what does that mean for us? It means that we should hold tightly without wavering the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. What he says will happen in Genesis chapter 14 comes into fruition in Hebrews chapter 7. And when he says, I will return for my people one day, the Bible is clear that that's going to happen. We rest in hope and assurance that that will happen. And so then, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of good love and good works. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but instead encourage one another especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. What should we do with this information, with this story? It should impact everything that we do. Our relationships, what we do with our life, how we live our life, it should impact everything that we are. And we should spur others on. We should boldly go into the presence of God. We should encourage others. We should get into a small group. We should be in mentoring relationships. We should be meeting in church so that we can love one another and we can be ready for when he returns home for his people. Again, if you've never made that decision today, we would love to share with you how. You know, it's, it's hard for us to look at the story of Melchizedek and the story of Jesus and not associate the two. But what we can clearly see, that from the very beginning of creation, God had a plan to be in relationship with us, even when we broke that plan with our sin. Do you know him today? Do you belong to him today? And if you don't, please do not leave here without us telling you, letting us share with you how. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living and it's active, that it penetrates heart, mind, body, and soul. And God, I thank you that you speak to us so clearly. I thank that you are a God who never changes, a God who doesn't change his word. Instead, God, everything that you say comes into fulfillment. And what that means for us, God, is that one day we get to be in your presence. I thank you for that, God. Who am I that you would be mindful of me, that you would love me, Despite my sin, my shortcoming, and all of those things, God, would you begin to speak to the hearts of your people today? Would you draw them nearer to you? Would we begin to realize the importance and the value of what it means for you as our high priest and king, the only way to God? Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise you. In your name we pray, amen.